This is The Rounds Table. Hey listeners, thanks for tuning in to another great week on The Rounds Table. I'm Kieran Quinn, your host. This week we're joined again by Dr. Katie Whisker, who is a fellow in general internal medicine at the University of British Columbia and a newly minted general internist. Katie, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Kieran. It's great to be back. For those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, the Canadian residents just finished writing their qualifying certification exams and Katie passed with flying colors. So here we go, Katie, why don't you take us through the article that you chose for this week? All right, thanks, Kieran. So my article this week is titled Flexible versus Restrictive Visiting Policies in ICUs, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. And so this was published in Critical Care Medicine in April of 2018, and the first author was Nasser. And what was the bottom line for this study, Katie? So the bottom line here is that in this systematic review and meta-analysis of 16 studies, flexible ICU visiting policies were associated with reduced delirium and anxiety among patients and greater satisfaction among family members. There was no effect on mortality or length of ICU stay. However, flexible hours were associated in one study with increased burnout among healthcare professionals. Wow, fascinating counterbalancing measure there that I honestly would never have predicted from just looking at the title. Well, let's find out a lot more about it because I'm already intrigued. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tell me, Katie, why did you actually choose this article? So, as you said, I think it's a very interesting area. I think that there is increasing recognition now of the significant long-term sort of physical, emotional, psychological effects of prolonged ICU stays or really any ICU stay, even on patients who survive. So things like post-ICU syndrome and PTSD. And so with that has come a focus to sort of patient-centered care and family-centered care in the ICU to help make it a bit less of a foreign, harsh, traumatic experience. So many ICUs and ones that you and I have worked with have liberalized their visiting hours as part of this transition, so allowed families to visit more frequently, whereas a lot of ICUs still in developing countries still have very restrictive policies and that the family isn't allowed in or can only visit in very sort of selected times. And sort of despite this discrepancy and a lot of theory, there hasn't really been a lot of evidence to guide what the benefits or harms to more flexible visiting policies might be. So this study sort of sought to kind of summarize and present the data in a meta-analysis where they were able to. Yeah, it's amazing because it's almost like common sense now or like sliced bread, so to speak, that families should be able to stay as long as they want in an ICU when somebody is that sick. But it wasn't always that way. So it's interesting to get this kind of perspective. Mm-hmm. All right. So you told us this was a systematic review. Tell us about how they actually went about conducting this type of a study. Mm-hmm. So the methods here are a bit different, obviously, than the usual type of studies on the rounds table. So it wasn't a randomized trial. It was a systematic review. And what they did for their systematic review is they had search criteria. Those were either the word visitation or visiting and the word critical care or intensive care. So they did a systematic search and then they also manually searched the reference list of all the papers they found. And what they were looking for were studies that compared flexible versus restrictive visiting hours in these critical care units. And there was some variability in what was considered flexible versus restrictive in the various studies. So the authors set sort of a line at six hours. So visiting any less than six hours a day was considered restrictive and more than that was considered flexible. And then from there, they looked for studies that looked at one of the following groups of outcomes. So either patient-related outcomes, and those were things like mortality, length of stay, delirium, ICU infections, family-related outcomes, so satisfaction with care, anxiety, etc., 
or ICU professional related outcomes. So primarily burnout um, and satisfaction. All right. Yeah, those are all very interesting and diverse outcomes. So I think that's a neat way to approach the problem. What about how many studies they ended up identifying from their extensive search? So they ended up finding 16 studies and seven of them were able to be included in various meta-analyses. A, because they had a lot of different outcomes and B, because a lot of these were quantitative findings. Uh, It was often difficult to meta-analyze the studies, but they did that where possible. And I'll just tell you a little bit about the studies because I think it's always important to know what you're putting in, in order to be able to analyze what you get out from these reviews. So only two of them were randomized control trials. 10 of them were kind of before and after studies. And they were from all over the world, which I think is a strength here. So from North America, Europe, the Middle East, Australia. And a lot of the studies were very small. So 100 patients or less. There was one single very large study of 60,000 patients that was a Brazilian study from 2013. So that obviously drove the outcomes in the things that it looked at, and that was ICU mortality and length of stay, and we'll talk a bit about that. Yeah, that's right. That's an important thing to remember, that sometimes large studies drive all of the findings, so the reported outcomes may be just the reported outcomes of that one Brazilian study. But I think we'll come back to that a little bit more later. Tell me, Katie, what did they find in the outcomes of these 16 studies that were included in their systematic review? All right. So in terms of patient-related outcomes, there were two studies that looked at delirium. And when they conducted a meta-analysis of these studies, they showed an odds ratio of 0.4 for a reduction in delirium with flexible visiting hours. So that was statistically significant and clinically that is very significant, obviously. Other patient-related outcomes they looked at, so there was two studies that looked at anxiety and depression, and there was no change in depression, but there was less anxiety seen with flexible visiting hours. There were a few studies that looked at ICU mortality and length of stay, uh, and there was no difference found here in either of those outcomes. And as I said, that was largely driven by the one very large study that looked at both of those things. And finally, in terms of patient-related outcomes, there were three studies that looked at ICU-related infections, which is kind of an interesting thing to look at. You would wonder if perhaps with more visitors coming in and out, there might be more chance for healthcare-associated infections, but they actually didn't find any difference here either. So what about the two other groups of outcomes that they were looking at? So in terms of family-related outcomes, they weren't able to do a meta-analysis here, given that a lot of the studies use different tools, different kinds of questionnaires and scoring systems. But they did find that in eight out of the nine studies, family satisfaction with care was improved with flexible visiting hours. And I think that's pretty intuitive. And then finally, with outcomes related to ICU professionals, so this was doctors and nurses, there was three studies that looked at satisfaction with the visiting hour policy. And that was a bit of a wash. So two studies showed an increase in satisfaction with flexible visiting hours, and one study showed a non-significant decrease. And then finally, sort of the very interesting finding with regards to burnout. So there was a single study that looked at burnout associated with visiting hour changes. So I I looked a bit more in depth in this study just because I was quite interested. So it was a study of eight Italian ICUs and it was a before and after study looking at burnout scores and attitudes of doctors and nurses before and after implementation of flexible visiting hours. And what they found is that at baseline, burnout was slightly higher among nurses. And after flexible visiting hours were introduced, burnout scores actually increased in both doctors and nurses. So doctor rates of burnout went from 32% to 37%. And in nurses, this went from 36% to 43%. So some pretty interesting findings. Yeah, absolutely. I do think I want to make one comment, though, that while this is very interesting as far as pooling studies, We have to be a bit careful about how we interpret the outcomes as far as 
the, let's call it the highest order of evidence that we have in a systematic review of meta-analysis because they're really only meta-analyzing two and at most three studies at a time. And some people would argue that you need to have at least a minimum of three studies to make a good, fair meta-analysis to say, you know, you have two and then you have a tiebreaker at least as the third. But nevertheless, I think there's some interesting lessons that we can learn here and at least directions to point us in the future. Yeah, I think that's a really important point, Kieran. And I think that is probably one of the main limitations of this study is that it's not truly a meta-analysis in the traditional sense of the word. And there were sort of flaws and a lot of heterogeneity in the studies that they looked at. So I think we do have to take all of this with a grain of salt, as you said. Right. But as I think the strength, as you said, is it's in multiple different places that, that these are being done. And that probably introduces that heterogeneity as well. But also the biological plausibility, if you like, for lack of a better term, and the coming to my brain right now, it, you know, that it makes sense that if families are around more and they're asking questions and they're being, you know, engaging the healthcare teams, that certainly could increase the risk of burnout in those individuals, just on a plausible standpoint. And counterbalancing that, yeah, and vice versa, that Patients are going to be more happy and their delirium will likely be less with more familiar surroundings in an unfamiliar place like an ICU. So that all makes sense. And I think that 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 helps the interpretation of this study as well. Absolutely, for sure. All right. So so what, what, what did you think? What were some interesting thoughts that came to mind after you had read this study? So I think kind of, as you said, I think that the first thing that caught my eye was the findings with regards to delirium, because delirium is such a prevalent problem in the hospital everywhere, and especially in the ICU, and it's associated with such significant morbidity and mortality. And there's all these trials going on right now looking to prevent delirium, reduce delirium. I recently read a paper that was looking at infusing like thousands of dollars of medications daily into patients to try to prevent delirium. It was a study on Presidex. So to think that you could have such a significant impact on delirium simply by having the family at the bedside, which as you say, is very intuitive and makes a lot of sense. I think that's pretty compelling for me and will make me sort of more cognizant of the really beneficial impact of this in future. I think that the other thing that is interesting here, as you said, is sort of the flip side of that and the burnout issue, which again, as you said, makes a lot of sense. And I'm sure you've experienced, I've experienced working in an ICU, it's, you know, three o'clock in the morning, you're tired. And having the family in the room does add sort of another level of stress. You're having to counsel them, you're having to communicate, you're having to work around them. So I recognize that that's probably a true finding. I think that given what we're seeing here, probably the benefits of having families around obviously outweigh that harm. And I there's some interesting theories put forth in that one Italian paper about ways to kind of mitigate that burnout. And one of the things they propose is that perhaps with families being so present, the ICU staff, and especially the nurses, because they're the ones who really spend the most time at the bedside, didn't really have sort of the training in counseling and communicating and filling that role. And that may be something that could be addressed to try to mitigate the burnout that was seen in that setting. Yeah. And I think the one thing that we talked about beforehand when we were sort of prepping for this that you brought up that I really liked was that, you know, a liberalized visiting policy doesn't necessarily mean an unrestricted visiting policy. Remember, patients have schedules, there's nursing care requirements that have to happen. There are sometimes that patients just need a rest, even from their loved ones. And so, you know, we, don't, we shouldn't think about liberalized policy as all access all the time either. So I think that was a really interesting thing to think about when you're sort of applying this to your practice. Yeah, that's an excellent point, Karen, for sure. Well, it was your point, so I think that I agree with that completely. 
All right, Katie, so I'm not sure where I land on this one. Tell me about what you think. Is this something that we take as the God-honest truth, or is this a good launch point to do a larger study from which we can find out whether these visiting hour policies are really effective or not? I think certainly the latter there, Karen. I don't think that, as you said, this is kind of the gold standard level of evidence. I think that certainly it warrants further study, particularly that piece on on burnout to me is very intriguing and I hope that we see more studies. But I do think that I will take some of this sort of for at face value, given, as you said, that it does make a lot of intuitive sense. And I think the benefits potentially are quite significant. So I think for me going forward, it will be something that I'm quite cognizant of about the the benefits of allowing flexible visitation for family members. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with what you're saying, Katie. I think that, you know, we probably don't know the true effect measure or the magnitude of the reduction in delirium or the increase in burnout based on these studies. And I think that the fact that you still see a signal despite so much heterogeneity in the studies is helpful to suggest that these findings are likely in that direction. We just don't know how precise they are. And so I think you're right. It would be really interesting to now use this to justify the conducting of a larger trial, whether that be a cohort or a randomized trial or what have you, but a great thought point to bring to the show today. All right, let's transition now to the article that I chose for this week. It is kind of a return of the Jedi, so to speak. We are looking at BNP, this time in the inpatient setting, whereas in September of this year, we looked at it in the outpatient setting. And we're talking about whether it can guide the treatment of acute decompensated heart failure. Dr. Susan Steinen published this with her group in circulation in April of 2018. All right, great. Thanks, Kieran. Uh, So why don't you tell us what the bottom line is for this article? Well, Katie, this was called the PRIMA-2 trial. I am going to spare you the acronym because it's a little bit of a stretch and it has nothing to do with the title. But as usual, it was a randomized trial of 405 patients who were hospitalized for acute decompensated heart failure. And they were randomized to either receive an NT pro-BNP guided or conventionally guided treatment for their heart failure. And ultimately, they found that the guidance of heart failure therapy to reach an NT pro BNP reduction of greater than 30% after clinical stabilization did not improve all cause mortality, heart failure readmissions, or the number of days alive out of the hospital at a six month endpoint. Did you catch all that? There's a lot in there to unpack. I'm excited to to hear more about it because obviously this is something that we deal with all the time, an extremely common problem. And I know there's been a lot of research about BNP and how we can use that recently. So I'm excited to hear sort of what you thought about this trial. So why don't you tell me why you chose this article to bring to the show today? Well, the rationale by the authors is such that More than half of patients who are admitted with heart failure will be readmitted or dead within six months. So it's very dismal numbers. And those with elevated filling pressures at discharge seem to have a worse prognosis. So an earlier trial randomized patients with a pre-discharge BNP, and BNP is a biochemical reflection of elevated filling pressures, if you like. This previous trial randomized patients with a pre-discharge BNP threshold as a sort of arbitrary number to further optimization versus proceed to discharge. And that trial found no difference in outcomes at six months. But this trial then said, okay, well, what about if we use a relative change from the BNP from an individual patient's baseline? And that might be more individualized to the patient and therefore more likely to actually achieve an important outcome if that's going to be the case. 
The last thing I would say is in September, we covered the GUIDED trial, which was the utility of outpatient BNP. And an excellent question was raised at this year's Canadian Society of Internal Medicine, where we presented the rounds table on the top 10 papers of 20, top five papers of 2017. And that was, well, what about the inpatient setting? How do we use BNP there? And thankfully, the PRIMA2 trial attempts to answer that. Well, you've, you've set it up perfectly. Um, so I understand the rationale behind it. Why don't you tell me how they conducted this study and what the methods were? So where did it take place and what kind of study was it to start with? Well, this was not a systematic review and meta-analysis. This was a good old-fashioned, multi-center, two-arm, but unblinded randomized trial that took place in the Netherlands, Spain, and Portugal, although mainly in the Netherlands. And it occurred between 2011 and 2015. All right. And who are the patients that they included in this study? So patients were admitted to hospital for heart failure, and their treatment for their heart failure was initiated before randomization until those patients achieved clinical stability. Now, the authors defined this as three out of four criteria of the patient met their target weight, their creatinine was stable and less than 25% above their admission creatinine, their overall symptoms were improved, or the fourth one was an adequate discharge medications were prescribed. Kind of an interesting one, but there you go. All right, and tell me, Kieran, why did they decide to have patients clinically stable prior to randomizing them in the trial rather than uh, randomizing them directly on admission? Yeah, I think it was an intelligent decision and a practical one. So it principally avoids including those who will die shortly after admission. And, you know, somewhere up to a quarter of individuals with heart failure who are admitted will die within a short period of time after they're admitted. And so ultimately, if you're including a bunch of people who are going to end up dying, even though they might be randomized to each arm evenly, your numbers to complete the trial to have enough patients to actually reach the endpoint is going to be a lot higher because a quarter of them die early on. The second thing is that a whole bunch of other patients may be scheduled for or considered for invasive procedures like PCI stenting or bypass surgery. And so that's going to affect your outcomes as well. Again, remember, that's going to be balanced in a randomization process, but it sort of introduces an element of noise to the trial that I think they're trying to avoid. I do want to say, though, as a caveat to that, because it's an unblinded trial and physicians are going to be able to see BNPs in the BNP-guided arm, they are allowed to go for procedures after randomization. And so you wonder if that somehow could influence the aggressiveness or the threshold to send patients for those types of interventions in the unblinded compared to the blinded arm. Now, you might make the argument that that's okay because if BNP is improving overall care for these patients, that it doesn't matter what that took to get them there. But I do think it's an important thing to keep in mind in interpreting the results. Absolutely. Okay, so I think I understand that how they enrolled people and that they randomized patients after clinical stability. What did they do at that point and how did they use the BNP to guide further therapy? So all patients at admission to hospital had a BNP measured. And then after they reached clinical stability, they were randomized to a BNP arm whose target was to achieve a greater than or equal to 30% reduction in BNP from admission levels or they were randomized to, let's call it usual care, where BNP was not used and physicians just looked after heart failure as they would any other way. Now here's kind of gets a little bit interesting nuances. The BNP group actually could be discharged if at the point of randomization, 
their BNP was already below that threshold of 30%. So they immediately leave the hospital. And uh, that's going to affect your, you know, differentially patients being discharged in one arm versus the other. Again, that still might be valid in the context of the use of BNP. And then for the patients whose BNP had not reached that threshold of 30%, they then entered a predefined algorithm that consisted of several steps, including continuing to measure BNP, and then a whole bunch of suggested interventions for heart failure uh, to try to reach that target. And those were things that you would expect, like optimizing medical therapy, ACE inhibitors, beta blockers, mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists, devices, angiography, cardioversion if they had atrial fibrillation. So a whole bunch of therapies that they might actually do. And then the last interesting point about the design of this trial was that there was no actually formal planned follow-up, whereas a lot of trials will have sort of predefined time points where patients all come back in. So that was kind of a pragmatic decision in applying and, and helps your sort of external generalizability in the real world per se, although most patients would probably be followed up after hospitalization. You would hope so, but we all know that sometimes people slip through the cracks. Okay, so with that caveat that they, there wasn't any formal sort of follow-up, what were the outcomes that they were looking at and at what time point did they assess those? Yeah, this can be short and sweet. I tend to ramble. The primary study outcome was a composite endpoint of readmission for heart failure and all-cause mortality at six months after randomization. And their second primary endpoint was the number of days alive out of hospital at six months after discharge. Okay, so with that all said, what did they actually find here, Karen? So just your typical population for this study, a 78-year-old individual who had a left ventricular ejection fraction of 37%. So not severely reduced, but a pretty moderate reduction in their pump function. They were symptomatic, NYHA class three, and overall, they had well-controlled blood pressure at admission. 40% actually were admitted in atrial fibrillation. And I think overall, this was a realistically managed, I'll call it, population. Whereas most trials, we see a lot of very optimally managed patients at heart failure specialty centers. Half the population here was on an ACE inhibitor, 60% on a beta blocker, 22% on a mineral corticoid receptor antagonist, and 11% were on no therapy at all. So a little bit more probably reflective of the quote-unquote real population. Yeah, and I think, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, but this did seem very much like a kind of pragmatic trial with sort of realistic people, people that I identify that I've seen in clinic and in the hospital. So I think that that, again, is reflected in the kind of population that they had. All right, so tell me what they actually found in the BNP-guided group versus the control group. So reminiscent of the guided trial for outpatient BNP, these patients actually were well-managed during hospitalization, I would say, at least reflected by the reduction in their BNP levels. So both arms had a 45 to 50% reduction in their BNP levels from their baseline admission levels. Now, the BNP-guided arm actually had a 5% greater absolute reduction, which was statistically significant. 80% of patients in the BNP group achieved the target reduction of greater than or equal to 30% from baseline and only 62% in the conventional arm did. So there was a difference with regards to that. Overall, a quarter to half of patients initiated new medications or had their medications titrated. This didn't really appear to be different between both arms. And more patients had interventions completed or planned in the BNP arm, circling back to what we had mentioned earlier in introducing the trial. Uh, all right. And how about their primary outcome of hospitalizations and all-cause mortality? What was the finding there? 
Yeah, so that's where things fell a little bit flat for this trial, I must say. There was no difference in any of their primary outcomes at the six-month mark. So mortality, all-cause readmission, and uh, days alive out of a hospital equal findings between both groups. Interesting. Okay. So is there anything in particular you want to point out about this trial? Any observations you wanted to make? So the authors make some interesting comments about why this trial may have turned out to be negative. And one of the arguments was that the event rates were lower than they expected. And that could certainly affect your ability to detect a difference. Although the fact that there was zero difference in looking at the precision, they also argued that it's probably unlikely due to that. What interested me was in a post hoc analysis, they split people in the BNP guided arm into sort of three different groups. And they looked at the people who achieved that target without any need for guidance, even though they were in the guided arm. So they got treated, they reached stability, and their BNP levels were lower than the threshold. Then they had another group of individuals within that arm who required guidance, but actually ended up achieving that goal. And then you had people who were guided by BNP but were unable to achieve that threshold despite all of the physician's best efforts in managing them. And this is where you started to see some differences between the outcomes within this subgroup of individuals. So for example, 28% of the people who didn't require guidance had experienced the primary outcome versus 49% in the people who uh, required some guidance to get to that threshold. That's a number needed to treat of five. And to me, that suggests that there's a fundamental difference in the type of patient who can and cannot achieve some sort of a BNP target. Um, and that's probably reflective of underlying physiology. Um, and so maybe we need to be targeting the patients who need the guidance and not all comers, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought absolutely that was kind of the most interesting piece of this trial for me as well. And I almost wondered if, in this sense, BNP kind of looks like a marker of badness or severity of heart failure or some sort of underlying uh, pathophysiology, almost similar to the way we look at lactate and sepsis. So we know that people who don't clear their lactates do worse than people who clear them spontaneously, but we don't necessarily know that in those who don't clear their lactates, if we flood them with fluid to try to improve things, if we necessarily make that better. So I almost wonder if it's more sort of a marker of, as you say, a different kind of type of patient rather than something that we need to aggressively chase with therapy, if that makes any sense. No, absolutely. And so I think, you know, we've seen roles for BNP in a certain subset of patients to help with diagnosis of heart failure. And certainly a lot of cardiologists use it in a prognostic way, but in a therapeutic sort of framework, BNP seems to be falling flat, both in the inpatient and the outpatient. And that's the main learning point here, Katie, that I don't think that BNP is helpful in the guidance of the management of heart failure in either setting. Yeah, and I think, you know, as you had said before, and as often kind of comes up in medicine, that it really we need to be treating the patients in front of us rather than treating numbers. And I think this kind of reinforces that practice. I could not have said that better myself. Well, Katie, thanks so much for another great show. Uh, let's move on to my favorite part of the episode. It's the good stuff segment where we're talking about what we are reading about. <laughs> 
Katie, what's catching your eye this week? Um, so I have been gloriously doing a lot of reading that has been not from guidelines and Royal College studying materials. So I'm a big fan of the the Palm Crit blog, which I'm sure many listeners know. And there was a post recently on April 23rd about uh, ultrasound guided subclavian lines that particularly caught my eye. And I wanted to highlight because I'm a big ultrasound person and I'm doing a fellowship in that next year. And I found that over the past year, I have really change from being an internal jugular kind of person to a subclavian line kind of person for a number of reasons. One of which, to be honest, is that you just don't have to like fight your way to the head of the bed to do it. But this post is sort of really nice in that it outlines kind of the pitfalls, the advantages, and sort of the technique of doing an ultrasound guided subclavian line, which I think is still something that uh, is a bit newer to some people. And it actually highlights a technique that was new to me as well with regards to just slightly improving the positioning. So I think that for anyone looking looking to sort of hone that clinical skill, it was a really great read. Fantastic. I'll be sure to read it. Admittedly, I'm going to tell you that A, I also have transitioned to doing subclavian lines. I find them to be much faster, but I do not use ultrasound on a subclavian line. So perhaps you can teach me how to do that in the coming days. Blasphemy. Blasphemy. Ultrasound for everything. Well, you're going to have to read it the post for sure. <laughs> I will 100%. Interestingly, and it's a perfect segue into my good stuff, not because it's at all related to its topic, but it turns out, full disclosure listeners, that Katie and I, for the first time ever out of between two co-hosts, had picked the exact same good stuff segment. And I liked it so much, I kept it for myself, so I'm sorry that I was being selfish. This is true, but I let you have it because, because it's your show, so. Ah, well, I appreciate the generosity. Anyways, the article I was reading was actually the impetus was from an essay written in the New England Journal of Medicine, but also Gord Guyot has written about this in the BMJ previously, and it's about stopping a trial early. Certainly, this is no easy decision. And I wanted to cover this on the good stuff today because... Even though it didn't happen on our episode, there's been a few episodes in the last few weeks that have had a lot of trials that have been stopped early. Now, we've formed these data safety monitoring boards to to protect participants and funding organizations from continuing trials that demonstrate either outstanding benefit, and therefore it's costly or unethical to continue the trial because why shouldn't the other group be benefiting from it, or why should we continue to pay for a trial that shows such outstanding benefit? Uh, We might stop trials for futility, that there's no evidence of any difference, so why carry on and paying all the money and enrolling all these people? Or sometimes we stop it because it's actually harmful, and again, that's unethical to expose people to that harm. But the decision to stop a multi-million dollar trial, sometimes these are hundreds of millions of dollars, are not easy. And the world is, is left then never quite knowing what the true effect of the intervention may be. And that's because trials that are stopped early for benefit or harm often overestimate the effect, and trials stopped for futility inherently haven't rolled enough patients to definitively tell us the result. Despite these predefined boundaries they put in place, all of their statistical measures and, you know, calculations on how big a trial needs to be are done on sample size, and that ends up getting cut short. Nevertheless, I think what I kind of thought about and made me reflect on, and maybe you can think about after you read this, is that responsible ethical research is the priority here, not getting an answer to a research question. And so it's a fine balance for these data safety monitoring boards and one that I don't envy having to be involved in. But certainly my hat is tipped to those individuals who have to make those decisions. 
Yeah, and I mean, as you say, this was a, a really interesting piece, both from the broader sense of the role of the Data Safety Monitoring Board, and as well as the particular trial that it was addressing in, in that issue of the New England Journal was a trial that was stopped for futility and sort of trended towards benefit, but didn't reach there. And there were a lot of sort of clinical questions that remained. So thanks for bringing that to the table today, Kieran. It was a great piece. Right. And Katie's referring to a trial of ECMO in acute respiratory distress syndrome. So if you're interested in critical care like Katie is, have a read and see what you think. Well, Katie, thanks for joining us again on the show. We hope to talk to you soon back on the rounds table. And as always, we thank you for bringing us your insight and the interesting articles that we talked about this week. Well, thanks so much for having me, Karen. It was great to be back and I hope to chat with you again soon. The rounds table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable, follow us on Twitter at roundstable, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. The roundstable would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes members. Thank you to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia-Flores, communications director, Anthony Maher, segment developer, Shaliza Halani, and faculty mentor and founder of The Rounds Table, Amol Verma. I am your weekly host, Kieran Quinn. Join us next week for an irreverent discussion of the latest medical research, because who knows what they have in store for us.